Hi everyone, welcome to the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a discussion episode, in which we talk about the future of History Respawn, as well as discussing topics in historical video games. I'm joined on this episode, as always, by my partner on History Respawn, John Harney. John, how's it going? Not bad, Bob. How are things with you? Pretty good. Uh, so, I wanted to lead this week by talking about uh, our last episode of History Respawn, uh, which is now up on YouTube. Uh, and it was on a game called 1979 Revolution Black Friday. And this is a game that centers on uh, the Iranian Revolution uh, in the summer of 1978 going into uh, the fall of 1978. Uh, and on that episode, I was joined by a historian from Idaho State University named Zachary Hearn. And I thought we had a really good discussion. And I felt like the game itself was maybe one of the best historical video games I've played, uh, primarily because it seamlessly adapted historical material and provided it to the players without really halting the gameplay. Uh, so in other words, you could get kind of a, a brief knowledge on a particular historical event without really feeling like it was a roadblock uh, toward the continued progression in the game. And, you know, there could be players out there who are just not interested in the 1979 revolution or Iranian history. But I think if you have a general interest in historical video games and historical video games as education, I think that the model adopted by this game is definitely one worth studying. So John, have you had a chance to check out this game? I haven't played it yet, unfortunately. Um, I've been watching bunches of videos, including the History Respawn video, and I did quite dig the um, kind of telltale style-ish, or the telltale-esque uh, decision engine decisions, things like that. And particularly in the History Respawn video, there's lots of like photograph taking. So I noticed in the video, the footage that we have, you know, the player character takes the photographs and then you get this information tied up to it. So is that photograph or that camera dynamic mechanic something that is throughout the whole game? Or is that just one example of the kind of ways the game introduces content like that to the player? Uh, it's both. Uh, so the uh, protagonist in this game uh, is a young photojournalist who's just returning home from studying abroad in Germany. And he is... Uh, and it's not really clear if he's actually a working photojournalist or if he's still a student. Uh, but anyway, he takes his camera with him wherever he goes. And so him taking pictures is kind of uh, his job in a sense. Uh, but it is also uses, as you say, as a mechanism for delivering historical material. Uh, and what's great about the photography is that you'll take a picture in the game and it'll show you uh, a real-life version of that same picture uh, from 1979. And the game makers have really done a fantastic job of uh, including a lot of archival footage in the game, not just photographs, but also videos. Uh, and the videos themselves actually include quite a few uh, home movies from the development team. Uh, these would be movies from Iran uh, in the mid to late 1970s. And so it really adds a personal feel to the game and it makes it feel as though the game world is something that is authentic and feels very, very lived in, uh, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. No, definitely. I, I, what I like about it, I mean, first of all, it kind of reminded me of Beyond Good and Evil, the kind of classic game, although it's a little bit different because the camera taking shots is kind of the whole thing your, your character does. But um, it reminds me it's odd it's I'm kind of cheating because it doesn't it doesn't really it's not that reminiscent of this but it reminds me of the assassin's creed games a little bit in terms of in the assassin's creed games you've got to go through a couple of menu levels to get to these points where it's like look at all this information you know um and i kind of just love the way the game very 1979 black friday just neatly kind of presents it to you because my experience working with students for example on video game classes and stuff you know i mean history classes talk about video games there's a lot of Assassin's Creed fans out there, which shouldn't be news to anybody, um, but a lot of people really dig and get into those bios and stuff. So at the same time, anything that can bring it out to the forefront, I think, is cool. And also, I love the idea, you know, this idea of showing this is what the actual photograph was. It's also kind of a, a retroactive justification, because obviously the way the game works, it doesn't, the reticule doesn't go green until you've hit the shot the way you're supposed to hit it kind of thing. Yes, so yes. It's just kind of cool, like... um. 
you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a gameplay mechanic that right. really helps the history, I think. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, I think it's very cool. And, and what came out in the episode as well, there's such a kind of, um, I don't know, it's such a weird thing that these kinds of things are not, these kinds of movements aren't covered more in video games when you think about it, you know? Like 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 streets full of people, rallies, um, intersection of religious groups and Marxist groups and, for, you know, a third yet kind of groups plus the kind of Western-backed dictatorship and everything. It's kind of, it's kind of fascinating that this isn't discussed more right. in games. I, I mean, mean part it, of, you know... Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's almost like a faction system in an open world game. Uh, right, yeah. You know, it seems tailor-made for something like that. But, you know, I think it's just a, a sign that, you know, a lot of game developers are wary of adapting non-Western history. Uh, and especially something as controversial as a non-Western revolution, which mm -hmm. comes with it you know, all sorts of political baggage. You know, for instance... Uh, many of the developers who worked on this game are now banned from traveling back uh, to right. Iran. So, you know, it's uh, you know, I think in the uh, the Gama Sutra uh, blog posts uh, that I uh, posted about this video, I called this uh, you know this game kind of a revolutionary act. And mm -hmm. I think you know, for the Iranian government, it it obviously is seen as that. <laughs> no, and it's it's fascinating because you kind of have these. There's kind of two things that come to mind for me. One, um, I feel like a few years ago, thankfully, we moved beyond the are video games as important as movies yet conversation. But there's this kind of sense of, you know, now game developers and game writers are being, are being, uh, I guess I was going to say victimized, but certainly are being targeted for the same reasons filmmakers and authors have been in decades previous. But secondly, as well, I agree with you. I, I'm sure it's just too controversial for Western developers to think about, at least on the business side, if not on the creative side. But one of the things that really came out with your conversation, from your conversation with Zach, particularly in the um, slightly longer version on the last episode of this podcast, was that these are factions, you know, like mm -hmm. there, there's very surprising intersections coming between, um, you know, socialists and uh, pretty strong, you know, hardcore fundamentalist Shiites, for example. Um, and that's something that as historians, we're constantly turning around home to our students all the time, you know, like... I teach a class on world history where I'll be talking about the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, and I'll use myself as an example as a good Roman Catholic, you know, and I'll talk about, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> as a good historian, I can't kind of say, you know, this is the appropriate side of the story because I'm a Catholic, you know, <laughs> like this right. doesn't work that way. And so in this game, at least, at least for me, certainly from the conversation you had with Zach, Zach Hearn, it just came out that, yeah, they're just factions, which is something historians are always trying to tell our students yeah. for sure. And trying to get that out into the outer kind of the broader conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so important about that faction element in that game is that it reminds you that it was not a foregone conclusion that this was going to end in a fundamentalist government. You know, that this was uh, a system that was going to be, uh, you know, based off of Islam. You know, instead right. there was uh, plenty of opportunities uh, for socialists to take over that revolution or the old guard nationalists, uh, you know, to take over uh, that revolution. So I think that that's probably the, the, the thing that I would recommend uh, for this game, if you're going to use it in a classroom, is that it just does an excellent job of not just providing historical material, but providing the type of historical material that you, reminds you that uh, there's contingency in the past, you know, right. that, that there was, there was chances, uh, there were, there were roads not taken. Uh, and I think, uh, it's, it's really, uh, easy to recommend this game, uh, to even people who are not familiar, uh, with video games. And, you know, I think that one of the reasons why it makes it so easy to recommend is because this is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, a telltale style game, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that you don't really have to, be very good at you know using a controller or you know running and jumping uh you know this is a type of game that can be played without any real experience mm -hmm. uh with video games in the past decade so uh again really easy uh to recommend this one yeah and i love this kind of intersection as well between genre and topic and and something i've been thinking about recently um you know in attempting with 
somewhat mixed success to kind of live stream civilization five and things like this mm -hmm. make me think about genre versus kind of historical choice and everything, because that telltale style system is in theory all about choice. Um, and although, you know, I noticed, I'm not sure what internet hole I fell down last week, but I came, <laughs> I came across a couple of steam forum, um, discussions on the walking dead season one mm. where they were complaining about, Oh, it's terrible. There's no replay value. They claim there's choice, but there isn't. And I thought, well, that's, deeply unfair because uh, it kind of missed the whole point of what that system does in terms of offering you choice because even the illusion of choice does that right and creates this kind of these kinds of ideas so i don't know if you can go back and play 1979 black friday a completely different way um but if you can't it kind of doesn't matter like the, like you use that beautiful word contingency there's this extent to which is it at least presenting the player you know with these doubts with kind of con context or concepts of there being alternatives yeah, yeah. and things like that and I wouldn't go as far as far as to say as that means this genre is the best for history games. I think that's clearly not true. I think games like Papers, Please, and of course Civilization itself offer very different avenues into those kinds of conversations. But I'm quite intrigued by how they mesh together. Do you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. kind of kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hopefully they get a chance to to make. Uh, more additions to this game uh, you know the developers ink stories they tell us that this is not an episodic game uh, primarily because they don't have funding yet uh, to continue the story so you know whether or not they get to continue 1979 and actually go through the whole revolution uh, is a matter of how popular uh, this game actually becomes and I've seen a lot of game press about it. I've seen a lot of podcast episodes. I've seen a lot of YouTube videos. So hopefully that's a sign that this game is commercially successful and they get an opportunity to kind of continue that story because I'd, I really uh, can't wait uh, to see the rest of it. You know, it's the kind of thing the U.S. government should fund. Like, you know, yeah. good old-fashioned 1970s style. You know, John Kasich was mocked in some circles for kind of wanting to recreate a radio-free Europe-type vibe, but... You can do that in ways that aren't necessarily chilling. You know, you can just yes. say, we're going to provide funding for, you know, creators from parts of the world where they're not welcome to do these things in their home countries. We'll do it for them here. And something like that would be fantastic, I think. Yeah, you know? I agree. Well, moving on to our second topic tonight, uh, I've been playing Uncharted 4. And uh, this is in preparation for a new episode of History Respawns about that game. Uh, and for that episode, I'm going to be talking with uh, Dr. Chris Haney, uh, who has just recently graduated from the University of Texas, and he's an expert on kind of the history of treasure hunting uh, and is uh, very familiar with uh, the story of uh, Sir Francis Drake, the history of Sir Francis Drake, which is closely tied uh, to the Uncharted series. The, mm -hmm. the main character, the protagonist, is Nathan Drake, uh, who is uh, supposedly a descendant of Sir Francis Drake. Um, and in Uncharted 4, uh, Nathan Drake is searching for the lost treasure of a pirate named Henry Avery. And uh, Henry Avery was a pirate who uh, worked for the British and uh, mainly operated in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so most piracy is associated with uh, the pirates of the Caribbean, uh, you know, hunting for Spanish galleons, uh, leaving Mexico on their way back to Spain, uh, in, in the Caribbean islands. Uh, but Henry Avery was operating in the Pacific, uh, attempting to do the same thing, uh, with, uh, ships belonging to, uh, the Mughal empire. Uh, so Uncharted 4 takes you to uh, different places around the globe, uh, including Scotland. Uh, there's a, I think there's a mission in Italy. Uh, and then finally it takes you to a set of islands just off the coast of Madagascar. Um, and some of the interesting things about this game, or at least some of the things that come to mind, uh, John, uh, especially for you, is uh, with reference to Roman Catholicism. So there's a lot of Catholic imagery in this hmm. game, particularly around the figure of St. Dismas. Uh, are you familiar with St. Dismas, John? No, I can't keep track of all of them. You know, I do my best. <laughs> no, I'm not familiar. Go ahead, please explain. So St. Dismas was the so-called penitent thief, and he was the thief that um, 
uh, at least if you're looking at the crucifix, he was the thief that was on the cross to the left of Jesus, uh, if you're looking at Jesus. Oh, okay. <laughs> so St. Dismas Remember me when you that... come into your kingdom? Yes, exactly. Yes. So yeah. St. Dismas was the one that uh, sought forgiveness, sought uh, salvation uh, while he was being crucified along with Jesus. And so according to the game, St. Dismas was uh, kind of a patron saint for a lot of pirates, especially Henry Avery. So the early part of the game is just chock full of uh, Catholic imagery, Catholic iconography uh, with St. Dismas kind of playing uh, the starring role. Um, and so uh, the game, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. For once, this game doesn't follow uh, the story of Sir Francis Drake, uh, unlike the first three Uncharted games, mm -hmm. but it still does kind of have that, uh, you know, what you might call the kind of conspiratorial nature of the previous games, meaning that, you know, there's all sorts of points in the game where the main characters are aware of what the history books say, but they say, well, well you can't trust what <laughs> historians tell us, right? You can't trust the stories, right? Uh, you've got to go and see it for yourself. And so, of course, you know, along the way, they end up finding that the history books have been lying to them and that, uh, you know, Henry Avery uh, and his operation in the Pacific was much larger than anybody knew about. Uh, and so this really falls in line with the previous games. And I'm just kind of wondering, I wonder if you could, you know, give me your opinion on this, John, but you know, there's a lot of this with historical fiction where, uh, you know, there is a, a lot of good, decent historical material, good, accurate historical material. But there's also this narrative through a lot of historical fiction that, uh, you know, a lot of history is uh, really a conspiracy, right? That there's some kind of master plan uh, that, uh, you know, somebody has been keeping uh, hidden from us and that if we really dug down deep, we would find out that most of the stuff we've been learning, uh, is all just lies. What do you, what do you think is the relationship between historical fiction and that kind of conspiracy narrative? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I kind of, um, I like it and I don't, I think it fulfills this very basic, um, mechanical need the author of historical fiction has to differentiate the work, I suppose, to a certain extent. I mean, I, obviously I suppose, the most either egregious or spectacular example in the last 20 years, if you want to use, which depending on who you are, you use one of those terms would be Dan Brown. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that whole kind of, um, Dan Brown, the author himself had this weird insistence that actually it was right. He was telling the truth and yeah. was he just trying to sell books or not? And so there's a kind of interesting thing. I think that it can creep into some very disconcerting territory um, as in conspiracy theorists, like unhelpful conspiracy theorists, you know, conspiracy theorists that perhaps are completely abandoning empiricism. Right. Um, I personally would be more in favor of being um, open-hearted about it and, and kind of seeing it as, as people kind of having their tongue in their cheek just a little bit, you know. At the same time, you mentioned the Catholic Church a few minutes ago. I mean, you know, for non-Catholics and for many Catholics, actually, many Catholics um, overlook how profoundly mystical the Catholic Church is mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, um, the sacraments and the way that they are um, practiced and, and, and the role of divine grace and all these things, this stuff is all like, it's not, it's not going into a room and reading a book and leaving, like in theory, the Holy Spirit's around and all this kind of stuff. And I think that it opens up a lot of avenues. I think particularly the further back you go now, Uncharted 4 is very interesting, of course, because it's set in the present day, right? Isn't right. It? Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, I should know that. I haven't played in Uncharted. <laughs> um, it's set in the present day, but it's kind of playing around with these ideas because the further back you go, there's almost this meta thing writers are doing, which is they're playing around with the fact that we don't, our sources are not as complete mm -hmm. the further back we go and the further and further back you go, the less complete they become. So whether or not that's what these writers are intending to do, I think that's kind of a cool effect. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, the, we're, we're kind of, we're drawing up kind of the, the dots. And then, and then in terms of how I take it myself, I think it depends on, on how it's being done. I think Uncharted is a very good example of poking fun or, or having fun 
with the history um, and then creating this kind of idea. Um, it also fits the protagonist being this free individual, right? And, 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 and someone who is, is, is not emblematic of systems that hold people down. I mean, whenever yeah. I think of Uncharted, I always think of Indiana Jones, which of obviously course. is another big influence on it. Um, and that whole avenue of popular culture is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. This kind of Saturday morning cartoons that inspired yeah. Spielberg, the Indiana Jones movies, and now Uncharted. I think that those things, that should be seen as a direct line, you know? Yeah, both both Uncharted and Indiana Jones, obsessed with kind of early Christian mm-hmm. stories, Catholic iconography. I mean, you know, what is it with you Catholics, John? You're just so, <laughs> you're so mysterious. And you have so many secrets. I mean, I think maybe Dan Brown is onto something. Oh, quite, quite likely. But I could never tell you. That's the problem. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> well, it's uh, interesting because, you know, I mean, as people who've listened to the podcast or watched the show know, you know, I'm a China specialist. And, you know, you go back to the early 1800s um, and, you know, uh, not just Catholics, actually, Catholics and Protestants are going into these buildings on Sundays and all the locals are trying to figure out what are they doing. And the government doesn't make a huge effort to stop some of the more sensationalist people from claiming cannibalism and perverse, gross sexual acts and magic and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of intriguing. The Catholic Church in particular definitely inspires people to assume that something crazy is happening. So, you know, there's lots of underhanded things. And I can't think why. I mean, to the best of my knowledge, um, popes and bishops always behave themselves throughout the centuries. So <laughs> there's, there's not much material there. Oh, boy. Uh, now, you, you do realize that this is going to be released to the world later on. I mean, you know, couldn't you be excommunicated or something, John? I, th- I think I'm good. I think I'm good. <laughs> this, car, this current pope, there's no rules anymore. That's the, uh, that's the, that's the, that's the uh, Well, I've, I've done a lot of uh, footage capturing for Uncharted 4, and uh, I'm recording the interview with Chris sometime this week, so I, I hope to have uh, the finished video uh, for uh, the History Respawn episode up sometime this week, probably early next week. But I'm really excited to to hear Chris's viewpoint on it, uh, you know, particularly with reference to not just the history of Henry Avery and piracy, but also this kind of idea of, you know, conspiracy history and treasure hunting, uh, which is something I don't know anything about. Um, you know, all my knowledge of treasure hunting comes from Indiana Jones and Uncharted. So um, I'm looking forward to getting an education. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I must say, I find it um, very exciting. And this kind of, you know, hearing that there's kind of these links to Henry Avery as an actual historical figure as well as a fictional figure, that's fun. Like as an historian and as a video game fan, that sounds like fun to me, as opposed to the Leon Uris style of historical fiction where it's basically, you know, an imaginary peasant on the edges, on the fringes of revolution or something. I'm kind of... I'd actually just I'd actually prefer to just read about the revolution in that particular latter case, but what Uncharted is doing is just I don't know I I like it I, I, this isn't the most intellectual comment but it just seems that they're having fun with it and yeah. I think that's been Uncharted's success all through the series is yeah they're having fun making that game and that that's a big part of what makes the game so fun to play for yeah. us yeah all right well uh, our third topic for today uh, is a trailer for a new game uh, called Battlefield 1, which is part of the Battlefield series. And uh, the trailer that came out for Battlefield 1 is the announced trailer uh, for a game that's coming out uh, in the fall, which is going to be focused on uh, the First World War. Uh, Now, for those of you who don't know, Battlefield is a first-person shooter series uh, that's developed by Electronic Arts and DICE. And this is a series that's very much in the mold of Call of Duty, uh, Medal of Honor. And for most of the Battlefield series, uh, they have been either in the Second World War. Uh, the very first Battlefield game was Battlefield 1942. Uh, but until recently, they've been focused on modern warfare. Uh, so this game is kind of a big departure, uh, not just for the Battlefield series, but also for... Uh, kind of first-person shooters in general, uh, because as a genre, that you know that group of games, especially Call of Duty, uh, you know, has really only dealt with the Second World War and then uh, wars and conflicts after the Second World War. So to go back to uh, the First World War uh, is a really 
interesting decision. I think it's a really exciting decision, especially because we don't often get that many uh, First World War games. And another interesting thing about this trailer is that it includes not just what you would expect from a First World War game, you know, the Western Front, the trenches, uh, but it also includes uh, at least footage, early footage, of fighting uh, in different settings of the war. So, for instance, there's uh, uh, one moment where you see a woman who's a Bedouin uh, riding through the desert, and then also you see uh, biplanes fighting in what looks to be a desert setting. And I think there's also some segments of the game that look like they were uh, taken out of a jungle, which could be uh, Africa. There was several campaigns in the First World War that were fought in East Africa, for instance. And I think that this is probably the most exciting part of the trailer, at least for me, as somebody who's read a lot about the First World War, or studied the First World War, to actually have a popular fiction, a popular game, uh, deal with other areas of the war that are not the Western Front. Um, and, you know, what's interesting to me is that this uh, game trailer got a lot of criticism from game journalists who were worried that, uh, you know, having a first-person shooter uh, set in the First World War was somehow, you know, disgracing or... Uh, kind of trivializing the hallowed history of World War One, But, you know, from my perspective as a historian, and I'm interested to hear what you have to think about this, John, you know, from my perspective, this seems like it could have the chance to be the most accurate first uh, first uh, World War One game that we've ever had. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, Robert Rath wrote about this for Zam, didn't he, as well? I think that there's... What fascinates me when I when I read these, I was stunned to, to hear people come out and suddenly have a conscience. It's like, have you been playing video games for the last 20 years? I mean, yeah. but to be fair to them, they are plugging into this very interesting contrast between how we remember and celebrate World War II versus how we mourn World War One. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and this is a very, very interesting contrast. And so when you, you know, one of the um, overwhelming images of World War One is actually the poppy fields in Belgium and Flanders, right? Mm -hmm. Like these kind of, this is um, where all these all these men, all these good men fell and died and everything else. And of course it was horrible and, and the scale of the barbarism was truly horrific. Not that it was the first example of trench warfare. I mean, Bob, you know better than I do, but in Crimea there was all kinds of problems and the American Civil War American had Civil War, a yeah. pretty high death toll as well because, because basically we had this leap in technology and the tactics hadn't followed. Um, but what's fascinating is so there's a sense of loss, and I don't know if you do this in American primary schools and high schools, but in Irish high schools, we certainly read the poetry of Wilfred Owens and all these kinds of people, you yes. know, and, and World War One as the great as the great line that Hugh Laurie has in Blackadder goes forth. You think I'm not sick of all this death, all this suffering, the endless poetry, you know, this is kind of what people <laughs> associate with World War One, but even Blackadder, which is this hilarious comedy series with Rowan Atkinson, ends it's it's it ends Blackadder goes forth with an astonishingly um, emotional and extremely serious comment on World War One, mm -hmm. whereas especially in video games, which basically go nowhere near World War One, World War Two has this, not always, this isn't fair to say it always has it, but there's this, you know, America won, the good guys won, the Nazis were bad, you know, and there's this kind of, it's fascinating to me that an attempt to, uh, to portray World War One realistically would be seen as insulting when nobody gives two hoots about Wolfenstein, the New Order. Yeah, which talks about you know, occult mech, um, you know, human experiments. You know. Yeah, and you know, part of me wants to say that, at least if you're thinking about what, and a lot of this came out a lot in online discussions uh, with game journalists, is that if you're thinking about this in terms of what the veterans of that war would think about Battlefield One, I actually think that they would be more kindly to the kind of gung-ho attitude of Battlefield 1 than they would to something like Black Adder Goes Forth. Because for those veterans, uh, especially for those who were who were not officers, they thought that the First World War, their service in the war, was heroic. That mm -hmm. they had achieved something. That particularly in Britain and in France, that they had defended the nation. They had saved the nation. Uh, and they probably would have seen more to like 
in kind of the heroic version of the First World War that you see in the trailer of Battlefield 1 than they would have in a black comedy. Uh, that, right. you know, for the most part, black comedies set in the First World War, they tend to mock the common soldier for, uh, you know, being a tragic figure, but also being somebody who is duped. Um, and that certainly doesn't fit with the historical record. You know, to say right. that soldiers in the First World War had tragic ends, had tragic lives is one thing, but to say that they were somehow duped or brainwashed into fighting is also uh, problematic, you know, primarily because it takes away their agency and it takes right. away from the fact that many of them were fighting for what they believed in. They were fighting in mm -hmm. those ideologies. Now, you know, we can have a problem with those ideologies. We can have a problem, for instance, with imperialism or monarchism, but those are what they believed in. And yeah. to say that, you know, they went in, uh, kind of with, uh, you know, without those ideologies is, it's difficult. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't make that argument. No, exactly. And I, I think that, um, I mean, I understand where this is coming from. And I, I think it is re it's a reflection of how we discuss these wars in our public memory, in our popular memory. Um, and again, you know, if you look now, World War Two, even the way the Chinese are trying to celebrate World War Two in the last 10 years has subtly shifted a little bit. It, it, they've always celebrated their resisting as, resistance against the Japanese, but this term of anti-fascism has really come in in a major way. And World War II is almost, you know, it's it's the victory of the light over the dark. We must all kind of come in. Whereas, of course, the origins of World War II come down to the Treaty of Versailles, which are, you know, these horrific kind of things meted out upon the Germans, you know, the, the completely unfair treaty, which overlooks how massively disliked Wilhelm II was in places like Britain, right? Um, these terms jingoism that we all are familiar with now come from that period. I mean, a lot of our listeners will know that, you know, these concepts of blood nationalism and dying for your country, um, these were rife in the years of World War One. Um, it was a large part of the reason that all the countries kind of fell into World War One. I. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that happened, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dulce decorum est pro patria mori, like these poems I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Those were reactions against... Um, what had been this, you know, massive wave of popular enthusiasm for laying your life down on the fields of Flanders, yes. you know. Yes. Um, and I think that, understandably, a lot of those poets took a very kind of a class-oriented analysis. And, of course, Marxist history would become extremely influential in Europe in the, in the following decades. And I think there's a lot of fruitful, um, there's a lot of fertile ground there to look at the extent to which Perhaps the masses were exploited by their rulers. That's one take. Um, but you're right. I mean, you know, the, the, these people went off to fight. I mean, the Easter Rising centenary just passed a few days ago. This is an Irish rebellion in 1916, um, uh, which eventually led to the Irish War of Independence. And when these men rebelled against the British, they were initially pelted with, with rotten fruit in the streets of Dublin by fellow Irish people for whose freedom they said they were fighting who said, you've betrayed the English. The English are fighting for freedom in the fields of Flanders and you've betrayed them. How could you do that? Yeah. And it was only after some extremely heavy-handed and poor decisions by the English government that, that they ended up becoming sympathetic to the Irish, but to, to the average Irish person. But the initial reaction of a, of a resident of Dublin in 1916 was, what are you doing? You know, yeah. like the, these guys are fighting the good fight. Yeah. Um, but it is a fascinating example, I think, of how quickly the narrative develops and becomes entrenched, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think more than any other war, at least more than any other European war, this is the first world war is a war that's been the memory of the war has been dominated by literature. You know, you brought up the, the war poets, Owen and uh, Sassoon, mm -hmm. you know, there's also all quiet on the Western front, uh, Robert Graves is uh, goodbye to all of that. All of these books um, that, seemed to set the tone for what the world first world war meant what it was about but the thing that a lot of people don't remember is that these books didn't really become popular until the mid-1930s when it became mm -hmm. obvious that europe was on the way to another world war um and even then you know that narrative uh this kind of uh what uh one historian called a poignant disillusion this narrative didn't mm -hmm. become uh, really dominant uh, in our historical memory until the 1960s. 
Uh, and it was really picked up in the 60s by people who were concerned uh, not just about things like, uh, uh, you know, colonialism uh, and uh, Vietnam, uh, but also mm -hmm. the threat of nuclear war and this right. idea that, you know, the people who are in charge of our nuclear weapons are uh, people who uh, could be like the generals of the First World War, who, you know, led people to uh, mindless slaughter. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think when we remember the First World War, it's always through the lens of these, uh, you know, very poignant, but also, uh, you know, very um, political pieces of literature, right? You know, as you mentioned, these were writers who were attempting to make a point. Uh, they were attempting to kind of overthrow the old orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. uh, but what what happened uh, in the 60s for sure is that it just established a new orthodoxy that it becomes very difficult to see the first world war in any other way that doesn't involve uh this kind of poignant disillusion that doesn't involve mm -hmm. the western front and you know that's that's troublesome for two reasons first it uh, denies the agency of the common soldier uh many of whom didn't write war poetry, didn't write literature. Most of that was written by junior officers who were of a higher social class. Uh, and then secondly, you know, with this literature, it really focuses attention on the fighting on the Western fronts. And, you know, I don't know what your experience has been, but most of my students had no idea that there was any fighting uh, besides the Western fronts. You know, they have no idea that mm -hmm. the war was fought in Africa uh, in Asia, uh, in, you know, the South China Sea, for instance, massive fights, mm -hmm. uh, naval engagements there. Uh, so, you know, I think that this, this, uh, literature, it's, it's incredibly powerful. And, you know, of course, I'm not trying to challenge the truth of those soldiers and what they wrote about, but at the same time, it's just had a absolutely, uh, amazing effect on how we remember the war. And I think that this, uh, this trailer really kind of brought up a lot of those issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating because it's, I think there's two ways in which world war one becomes subsumed into the broader 20th century narrative. And, and the first, as you said, I've had exactly the same experience of my students. And, and I think it's a commonly held, um, belief that world war one was basically European conflict, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas World War II feels global to people, not least because of the Pacific theater, if nothing else, you know? Because right. um, even World War II, I feel like in Britain and growing up in Ireland as I did and living in Britain, Montgomery and, and the conflict in Africa are things that are in prominent people's minds. I think in the American mind, it's, it's kind of a, it's the combination of Normandy and Iwo Jima, right? Right. And I, I say that not to imply that Americans are being overly simplistic, because I don't think they are, but just to say these are the things that stick in the mind. The other thing is, I'm not sure how it's taught in the U.S., I assume it's not too different, but when I was a teenager, you know, it's World War I, which leads to the Treaty of Versailles, which led to the rise of Hitler, which leads to World War II. And so World War I becomes a step on the way to World War II, mm -hmm. you know, which, is, of course, is dominated by the horrors of genocide, um, you know, a term that is coined after World War II, you know, the, you know, the horrors of, of, of the Holocaust, um, and then immediately runs into um, us coming close to nuclear annihilation. So in that sense that narrative is almost conscious of that. It becomes, World War I becomes the the early entry into what was to become a horrifyingly violent century, especially from a European point of view, um, which I think further kind of reaffirms that Europeanness. So so I, I, I'm excited also by seeing them go outside of Europe in the game, and I'm excited about them about them going into the game. And, and, and the thing is, I don't have a problem with people raising issues of, of sensitivity, um, but I hope those same people will consider raising them with World War II games also um, and Vietnam games and, and so on. You know, yeah. like, like why not? I, why not have both sides? Why not have various sides of this conversation for all these settings? Yeah. Um, I'm thrilled they're doing it, you know, and it will. This is the whole thing. This is the work that we do at History Respond, isn't it, Bob? Like this is going to spur people to get interested yeah. in talk, talk about World War One. Yeah. I mean, this is the I mean, this sort of thing is the reason why the show exists. And, yeah, yeah. you know, I think, at least from my perspective, I don't know if you agree, but, you know, from my perspective, I tend to look at these things as, you know, someone with a glass half full and thinking, well, it is unfortunate that uh, this game upsets so many people. But at the same time, I think it 
kind of brings up this dialogue, this discourse about the First World War that we weren't having uh, before mm-hmm. this trailer came out. And to kind of give you a uh, you know an example of of that, I uh, I spent a few weeks uh, this time last year pitching an article uh, about uh, this very same topic about the fact that most uh, games about the First World War uh, don't uh, deal with other fronts and they don't deal with this kind of heroic narrative of the First World War. And I couldn't get that article picked up. And so mm-hmm. I just gave up. And now here we are a year later and we've had half a dozen hot takes, mm-hmm. yeah. hot take articles on gaming websites about what this trailer, a trailer, not even a full game, but a, <laughs> a minute and a half long trailer, what this means for how video games portray the first world war and you know it just it's just astounding to me that you know uh that this is it's become a hot topic uh, of conversation and i think you know you can criticize the game you can criticize its uh anachronistic uh elements uh you know particularly the inclusion of a dubstep version of white stripes Uh, (laughs) but at the same time, it's leading to a conversation that I think is really important and really worthwhile. No, I agree completely. And I, I think that um, I, it's kind of a tired defense of these situations. But, you know, let them make the game and let's see what the game is like when it comes out. You know, and, and if the game comes out and if I play it and I come away going, geez, that was a bit, you know, that was a bit shallow, wasn't it? Then that's what I'll say, you know, <laughs> that's yeah. what I'll write. Um, and I can see why people had that reaction to the trailer. But again, we're on the same page here. For me, the the much greater takeaway is that we can talk about World War One now. Like that's, yeah, it's happening. That's it's it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. All right. So our final topic is another debut trailer this week, and that's a trailer for uh, Civilization Six. Which Six. Wow. I know, I know. Where's the time gone? I, um, but Civilization Six is coming. Uh, it's coming, I think, in October. Is that right? Do you know? Yeah, it's definitely the autumn. I think yeah, October. Right. So Civilization Six, and uh, for this version of Civilization, Firaxis is making a few changes. Uh, so they're bringing back uh, the so-called Stacks of Doom. Uh, these are right, stacks yeah. of enemies. Uh, so in uh, Civilization Five, they had kind of uh, split apart the stacks. You can only have so many military units uh, in the same vicinity. Uh, now they're bringing back stacked units, so you don't have to to move dozens of different military units across the screen. You can just use one stacked unit to move. Um, the other thing I think is interesting is that they're kind of bringing on a more expanded role uh, for environmental elements and environmental uh, events. Uh, which I think the series had included in Civilization Four, but it kind of backed away from mm-hmm. a little bit in Civilization Five. Uh, and then finally, uh, one of the things I noticed uh, from the publicity, the uh, kind of preview literature on this game, this trailer, uh, was the fact that they're really trying to emphasize the personalities of the different historical figures uh, in this game. So. Uh, previous Civilization games, especially Civ Five, had had kind of certain characteristics uh, associated with certain world leaders that made them better able to build certain wonders or better able to construct certain units. Uh, but from what we've seen so far from uh, the publicity for Civilization Six, it looks like Firaxis is going to try to build upon that system. And it's not really clear yet what that means, but... I'm sure we'll find out more uh, during the summer, especially if mm-hmm. the game's coming out uh, in mid-fall. Yeah. So what what was your view on kind of this uh, preview coverage of Civilization VI? Anything stand out to you, John? Um, you know, a lot of the stuff you mentioned, I've never cared about the personality of the leaders. I, I mean, I get where they're coming from a gameplay standpoint. From, as an historian, it always kind of worries me a bit, like, a, you know... You know, I the Chinese behave this way and right. Germans behave a lot that of, way. A lot of generalizations, a lot of stereotypes that you could stumble into with that. And kind I know of, it's yeah, characterization. I know it's gameplay, and it also gave us sort of the most famous Easter eggs of all time, where in Civ One, Mahatma Gandhi was a bloodthirsty tyrant who was insane and would fire nuclear weapons at you the first chance he got. Yeah. 
um, which is, you know, fantastic. Um, the topography really reached out to me. I think that's a cool idea. Um, I'm glad they're doing it. Um, my favorite civilization, for whatever reason, my favorite civilization moment of all time was way back when in Civilization Call to Power, which was a game they released back in the late 90s. I played and, Call to Power. Yeah, and you could have underwater cities in that game. Underwater awesome. cities? Could you have yeah. cities in the air, too? I don't Am I remember. that up? I know you could have underwater cities, but I want to see... The say... underwater cities, I remember. They got to come back. <laughs> I love those. I love those. Um, so I, I, the environment, I think, is fantastic. And also... I I don't know to what extent I, I doubt this is following the historical trends. I'm sure the historians and the game makers are following the same trend, which is trying to think about the environment more in terms of a long term view of history. But that is something that's become very um is becoming more and more vibrant in historical conversations in the last fifteen years, like noticeably so in all fields. You yeah. know, like it's just becoming more and more common, not just for books about the environment to come out but for books that are about different kinds of topics, particularly if, for example, your field is agricultural history or maybe urban history, um, more and more historians at some point in their discussion will tackle or at the very least, you know, refer, refer to the environment and, and work being done on the history of the environment and the history of human interaction with the environment. So I'm excited to see where that goes. I suspect there's a lot more to come, but we'll have to see. And then the Stacks of Doom, I actually love coming, I love them coming back because... I'm a big fan of Civilization kind of embracing its gaminess anyway. Yes. Um, and in Civ Five, which I very much enjoyed, um, it did have an unintended impact where the scale never felt right. Yeah. Um, it was very hard to make yourself feel like some massive crazy. Like I remember back in Civilization One, I'd build a, I'd build a, a, I'd build a wall of fortresses of one tile fortresses along the border with Russia and just fill them with dudes all the way at the border. And I, I really, I really felt like I was. You know, I, I was the, uh, you know, the German, the German hordes of, of the 19th century couldn't be held back, you know. Yeah. So I, that's a promising that's coming back. Yeah. And one of the things that I uh, picked up from uh, the pre, pre-release coverage is the fact that uh, they're attempting to find a way to make the games shorter. So instead of having, mm. you know, civilization playthroughs that take, you know, 50 hours, uh, they're looking to find ways to make the game take only six or seven hours, uh, which I think is, is a smart decision. You know, I think, um, I'm sure they have a lot of data on this about, uh, play styles, but mm-hmm. you know, it strikes me that, you know, the thought, at least for myself of sitting down and playing a game of Civ where you can go get, you know, so quickly wrapped up in the narrative, the, you know, the self-created narrative, uh, you know, it, it's really, uh, potentially dangerous, uh, especially for someone like myself with a uh, mm-hmm. with a job and a child. Uh, <laughs> so it does sound really attractive to me to have you know this kind of nice, tight uh, yeah. civilization experience that only takes five or six hours. That sounds that sounds good. That sounds that sounds nice. Yeah, I mean, for some of our listeners, they're at a point in their lives that you and I were like fifteen years ago. Where I mean, I distinctly remember putting in Civilization three into my computer. Um, at like 6 p.m. or something and I looked up and it was 2 a.m. and I was just <laughs> what what just happened yeah. and I think what they're aware of and they've been aware of to be fair to them for at least a couple of iterations of the game is that civilization games they suck you in you get stuck in you have that one more click one more click that 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 fantastic alchemy that made the series such a hit in the first place but especially in recent versions of the game, you just get to a point where you're just micromanaging the whole bloody empire. You know, you're just yeah. you're just constantly doing stuff, and that's not fun anymore. Whereas if you take, I'm currently playing Stellaris, the Paradox's new grand strategy game, um, which I'm really enjoying, and I'm enjoying it in the way that I enjoyed Crusader Kings 2, which is those games taught me first of all to accept failure, and in a Paradox game, and you can't do this in Civ anywhere near as well. You can be somebody's vassal for like a century. You know, you can. You can be a bit part player in a broader um, geopolitical mess and wait for your opportunity to be the guy to jump in or maybe not jump in. Um, and it's the way the game works is different and you can just kind of let it roll by you and let it do what it's doing. Um, but civilization doesn't quite work that way. And there's only so much they can do, right? They can't just completely change the way the game works or it's a different game. Um, so I'm interested to hear an attempt to make the game shorter. Um, I wonder if it would be a case of you know, standard sieve and then, you know, faster sieve. Do you know what I mean? If there'd be way tracks for players to take yeah. up because, because you know that if they made the standard game seven hours long, there'd be a lot of, a lot of diehard civilization fans would be very upset by that. Yeah, definitely. 
I think you're right about that. And, you know, I think there might be some concern from the Civ audience that they'll be making a new version of uh, Civ Revolution, which was kind of a that same sort of model of having a, a five to seven hour long game, but it was tailored for the console audience. Mm-hmm. And I think it eventually came out on iOS as well. Uh, so I don't think you'd want to go that far, but I mean... I still like the idea of, of a shorter <laughs> sieve. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I mean, it still it still sounds really attractive. So I don't know if that makes me out to be a uh, you know a, a noob or a non-hardcore player, <laughs> but I don't care. I've I've got too much on my plate. Yeah, we're we, you know it it really takes something as an historian. One of sieve's issues that I I don't think issue with it. It's just it's just a fact of life with sieve that. It's completely anachronistic the way you like it, it's it's it. I, I guess you could try and play the game so that you know James Watt's steam engine comes out at just the right time, but then you're not playing a game anymore. Like why would you even do that? It wouldn't be fun. Um, but if they're going to bring out the shorter gameplay modes, it takes that issue and just cranks it up to eleven. You know, yeah. it's just like whatever. Like you you might develop the nuke in twelve hundred AD or something. I don't know. Um, and and that actually isn't a problem with Civ from a historian's point of view. I think that's a lot of what makes Civ so compelling and so interesting. You know. Um, and certainly something, just speaking from my own um, experience, as someone who has assigned Civilization V to students before, um, if I knew they could get through a playthrough in six hours, that would be coming back. That would be exciting. Yeah. Like I would just, I would just do that. And then I could even put it on labs at work. I wouldn't have to worry. Something that I worry about sometimes when we're teaching classes and video games, I, I don't want to assume my students have computers that can run certain kinds of games and things that kind of, you know, people all have different, I don't want people to feel awkward or or feel like they're missing out. So that that would be exciting. Yeah. I'm sure that was primary in Firaxis's mind. How can we make sure that people like John Harney can let their students play the game? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we are their target audience, John, so they should be That's true. should be listening to us. I hope they listen to this podcast as well. I mean, <laughs> got some great ideas. Um, well, I think that's going to do it for us this week, uh, History Respawn Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Again, you can reach us on YouTube uh, at History Respawn uh, and then also, uh, if you enjoy what we do, if you like the videos, if you like the podcast, uh, please consider uh, contributing to our Patreon. Uh, and if you just go on Patreon and search History Respond, uh, we'll be there. So thanks again and take it easy. Mm-hmm.